I'll be speaking this morning from Matthew 5, uh, 17 through to 48, and talking about the freedom of radical righteousness and love. When I first became a Christian, I joined a fundamentalist Pentecostal group. There were a lot of rules. Don't listen to secular music on the radio. Don't date before marriage. Go to church at least twice on a Sunday. Even don't wear synthetic clothes and don't go to university. That den of iniquity. This group had many, many rules. But have you, have you ever noticed that laws without inner change don't work? We see this all the time in society. God came to humans who thought certain things they were doing were right and proper and instructed them to live a different way. In the Old Testament, we see that God's laws deal with things like lying or stealing, committing adultery. God's law also dealt with the desires and the feelings that undergird those behaviours, those things that cause people to lie and steal and commit adultery. God comes to us and says, if you wonder what I'm like, if you want to know what pleases me, if you want to see a reflection of my character, don't covet, don't lie, don't steal. This is how you ought to live. So Jesus and Paul say the law of God is good and it has a righteous purpose. But there's a problem. The law runs into people who are controlled by sin. In Romans 7 verse 8, Paul says, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Now, I don't know about you, when I read those verses, my question is, Paul, what are you talking about? The problem for many of us, uh, for most of us as modern readers, is that we don't have the Jewish uh, background, the Hebraic training of many of the audience that Paul was talking to. Uh, Paul was often addressing Jews in Rome who understood what these verses were about, and they're a little bit confusing and complex. Let me suggest this illustration that comes directly from the great preacher, Haddon Robinson. He says, have you ever noticed that when you go to work for a company during the orientation and training period, they never tell you everything? There's always something they forget. All of a sudden, as you're working, you're confronted with a situation that wasn't covered in orientation. You're tired of going back to your manager and asking questions. You don't want to look like a dummy. You want to show some initiative. You want to be admired and respected. So you attack the situation and you create a set of procedures that help you work as quickly and effectively as possible to finish the task. For the next two or three months, every time a situation arises, you do whatever you think is right and you're proud of the work that you're doing. Now, three months later, your manager comes by and observes what you're doing and says, hey, 
That's the wrong procedure. You're going against the company policy. What you're doing doesn't take into account what's happening in accounting or sales or what's occurring in the other parts of the plant. You need to do things in a different way. And here are some new procedures. You realize that in relationship to the company's policies and procedures, you've been sinning. You haven't been following the correct way of doing things. But then something else occurs the moment your manager tells you that. If you're like me, something down in my gut says, wait a minute, he or she doesn't understand my job. I figured it out. I've done it effectively. If I follow their procedures, it's going to be more paperwork, learning new ways of doing things, going against what feels right to me, more bureaucracy. And when the manager leaves, the temptation is to do things the way that I've been doing them for the last three months. Why? Because there's something deep inside of us that causes us to respond negatively to law rather than positively. God gave the law to humans saying, this is the way I want you to live. Paul the Apostle says that when people are controlled by sin and they're confronted by the law, and the law is good, but when they're asked to change and go back to God and repent of what they've been doing, they do just the opposite. We rebel. We don't want to live the way that God wants, and we sin in greater and greater ways. God has all the evidence he needs, if he needed more. When a sinner stands before him and the books are open, God can say, here is my law. Here's what you knew. Instead of coming to me, you went the other way. The evidence is marshaled and we are condemned. And so Paul, picking up on these ideas in Romans 7 verse 13 says, did that which was good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what is good. Because the law is good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. That's why God gave the law to humanity, not to make us holy, not to make us righteous, but to show us that we are utterly sinful and in need of grace and when an utterly sinful person sees their sin before the law paul says the thing that she or he does isn't respond positively but move in the opposite direction and respond negatively the pharisees thought that they could get into heaven by not only strictly obeying god's law but by heaping more and more laws and rules upon people the pharisees had 613 commandments or laws including positive commandments to perform an act and negative commandments to abstain from certain acts the negative commandments number 365 which coincides with the number of days in the solar year and the positive commandments number 248 
a number ascribed to the number of bones and human organs by the Pharisees in the human body. So these positive and negative commandments didn't come about by chance. Jesus says that this kind of legalism won't get you into heaven. In Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem was that in keeping the law, we're not made holy. The law doesn't produce righteousness. It doesn't produce holiness. All it produces is rebellion and frustration. And that's not because the Lord is bad. The, Lord is, the law is good. The law is holy, but it cannot make us righteousness. It only produces frustration. There are parts of the Mosaic law that you and I latch on to because of our background, our heritage, our training, our culture, because somehow we think that that's what we're supposed to do, whether it's about what we eat, our tithing, our setting aside certain days, we're committed to it because we think that it will produce holiness. And Paul says, every time I come back to the law of Moses and try to live a holy life, it doesn't produce holiness because I still have a sin nature. I saw the law telling me not to lie and I lied. I saw the law telling me not to covet and I coveted. I saw the law telling me not to be immoral, but I lusted. Paul says the law can't produce holiness. That was never its purpose. And Haddon Robinson, when he's unpacking this passage, says, some of you might say, well, I don't live by the law of Moses or the commands of the Pharisees. But let me make a suggestion here that we Christians have all kinds of things that have become law to us, even if we don't call them laws. We kind of say, here's where the cliff face is, so we're going to, of, of immorality or sin. So we're going to build a bunch of laws that are way back from the cliff face, and we're going to set all kinds of rules and regulations so that nobody ever goes near the cliff face and falls over them. Now, the problem is this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. The Bible says that lust is wrong, so we say don't watch certain kinds of movies. Don't watch certain TV programs. Only read a righteous text like the Sydney Morning Herald. Don't go anywhere near the Melbourne age. I'm stirring you, of course, because I'm here in Sydney. We create all these kinds of rules and regulations to try to be holy, to try to keep people pleasing God, but they don't work. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, I haven't called you to live by the law. Instead, I've called you to live by the values of the kingdom of heaven, imitating my life as you do so. Some of you may follow me one way. Some of you may follow and imitate me a different way, but that's fine because in order to produce maturity, in order to reflect my heart, in order to be my disciple, I want to give you grace and freedom. Your righteousness must surpass the legalism 
and the righteousness of the Pharisees. We need God's freedom, the freedom that comes not through laws and legalism, but through the power of God's spirit and grace. We need freedom from the pursuit of power and control in our relationships, freedom from disunity and division, freedom from racism, freedom from pornography, freedom from shunning those who are different from us politically, racially, religiously, freedom from closing our hearts to refugees and immigrants, freedom from our abuse of the earth and the poor, freedom from greed and selfishness and the accumulation of wealth and material items. Only God's grace and power can offer us this kind of freedom. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the righteousness of Jesus' disciples is not the righteousness of laws and rules written on tablets of stone, imposed by force of law on unwilling, stubborn, stony hearts. It's not the righteousness of the Pharisees, but rather the radical righteousness of the kingdom of heaven, the righteousness of the heart. In verses 21 to 48, Jesus says, the radical righteousness of the kingdom of heaven, the righteousness of the heart, is a righteousness that touches the way you deal with anger. In verses 21 to 26 of Matthew 5, we see this. In verses 27 to 30, we see that it's a righteousness that has to do with the eyes and what you do with them. In verses 31 to 37, we see it's a righteousness that is about keeping our promises. In verses 38 to 48, we finally see that it's about a righteousness that is about the way that we respond to our enemies and those who attack and hurt you. This radical righteousness shows in our forgiveness of those who've wronged us, in our sexual integrity, in our keeping of promises, in our generosity, in our love for our enemies. This isn't the legalistic law-keeping righteousness of the Pharisees and religious leaders. This is the radical righteousness that only comes through grace and freedom and in the power of the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take love for enemies. This is the hardest part of all, isn't it? Now, it's easy to love the abstract, distant enemy that we never meet, never rub shoulders with, and who is not exactly like us and a threat to us, but it's much harder to love the enemy who is similar to us, who is close to us, who is our brother. This is why Jesus says, if you have something against your brother, go to them, because it's the person who was once close to us that hurt us, wounded us, betrayed us, that we hold resentments against. 
Have we ever noticed that when Christian groups end up in conflict with other Christian groups, it's often a group that's very similar to them because it's easier to feel angry, righteous wrath, pick the faults in our brother, the one who is close to us and our sister, than it is someone who's abstract and far away. It's easier to say, I forgive, I love my enemy, if we never meet that enemy, if we don't know that enemy, if that enemy once wasn't sitting beside us on a Sunday morning breaking bread with us. As you take communion this morning, who is it that once took communion with you that has hurt you, that once worshipped with you that has betrayed you? There was once in your church, but then took a group of people and went and planted another church. Jesus says, love your enemies. And the hardest enemy to love is the one who was once dear, close, an ally, a brother, a sister, a friend. Jesus is saying to us, if you want to be like God, if you want to belong to him, if you want to resemble his character, then treat your enemies the way that God treated his enemies. How does God act toward his enemies? Verse 45, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. More than that, actually, he loved his enemies so much we find in the rest of Matthew's gospel. He loved his enemies so much that he sent his only son to die for them. So Jesus says, treat your enemies like that. Pray for them. Do good for them. Love them. In verses 43 to 48 of Matthew 5, Jesus was talking about a righteousness that surpasses that of religion and its rules and regulations. Jesus is talking about a radical righteousness grounded in God's love. God is love and our righteousness is characterized by love. Love is not just towards our friends, but love towards even strangers and enemies. Love that doesn't keep looking for limits and exceptions and excuses not to help. Love that isn't held in by the limits of selfishness and fear and greed. Then in this love, as verse 48 says, we can be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. The word perfect here in Greek, teleos, doesn't mean without sin. It means mature and complete. So what this verse is saying, verse 48, is that in this love, we experience a radical righteousness that doesn't make us perfect, but makes us mature and complete in Christ. In Jesus Christ, God gives us his radical righteousness and a perfect love that makes us complete and mature in him. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to Matthew 5. We know the temptation to rebel, the temptation towards legalism, 
the temptation towards a righteousness that is the righteousness of the Pharisees that doesn't make us holy, that doesn't make us pleasing to you, that doesn't impact the world. Give us a radical righteousness grounded in love, a maturity, a completeness that only your love, only your freedom, only your grace can give. In Jesus' name, amen.